all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 227 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the American sitcom episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out, you know it, you knew it was coming, you knew it had to be, that yes, there was an American sitcom originally airing on NBC from September 14th, 1985 to May 6th, 1990, starring Marla Gibbs as a sharp tongued inner city resident gossip and housewife named Mary Jenkins. And that television sitcom was 227. Yes, and for those of you who aren't aware, it was actually a bit of a spinoff from Amen. Yes, that's right. So, with that wonderful little bit of American sitcom knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim... How was your Easter? It was Easter the... Uh, no, it was not. What the fuck am I talking about? I don't know, because Easter's this Sunday. Yeah, so. East, Easter is this Sunday. So is Easter a big thing for you guys? I know you're religious somewhat. I know Sunday was the big plant day. I know when it's the big plant day on a Sunday, you know that Easter is at least one week away. Uh, I think that's how it works, right? Every year, once you see people walking around with oh, yeah. fly swatters... To, you... I'm trying... I'm trying the fuck is plant day? Like, you're talking about Palm Sunday, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what does that What does that tell you? Hey, I know everything, right? <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, I, I believe that's what the deal is. Um, but you celebrate Easter every year with your family, like your like your girls. They go yes, out yes, we, hunting yes, for Easter eggs. The, and... Yes, we do the Easter egg thing in the Easter basket, and yes, uh, they go uh, to church or what have you. And yeah, that's it's yeah. So we do that thing, and then of course we definitely get with the family, the greater family at large, and have an Easter dinner. Um, so that is what, yeah, so that will be happening. We will actually, um, since my father-in-law's death, we will actually be doing it um, out in Brunham. We have a, uh, a familial property, as it were, and it is known as the Sand Hill. And um, because you can't have a familial, you know, farm property out in the country and it not have a colloquial name like the sand hill so um we have that and we will be heading out there for easter this year um the 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 kidlets do not know this but we will be coming home with a dog as well oh wow so this is going to be a dog that you will be taking care of you know this right Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is this has been ongoing for over a month now in terms of uh, negotiations and understanding and uh, things that will have to be, you know, who's, you know, and, and I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about when I'm not home. Will your daughters find this dog in an egg? They have no idea. Well, I mean, will it be in an egg? On, no, no, no. On there's the, no. It's it was a big litter. Um, it's actually uh, half blue tick coonhound and half blue healer. So. Yeah, so it's and it's already going to be it's either eight or ten weeks old, so um, freshly weaned off mom, so it's going to be a little too big for an egg. <laughs> but um, no, the the discussions were between me and my wife. I I I knew what I could do, but I really wanted to make sure Jen would, you know, is willing to step up and everything. Well, apparently in Mexico there is a church 
that is trying to spice up Easter, in Jesus for that matter, where Mexican church, this is according to io9.com, a little bit of news of the weird right here, a Mexican church pairs Jesus in the Avengers for Easter, written by Beth Elderkin. And this is what it says. I think it's kind of interesting. A church in Mexico is promoting some of its upcoming Easter celebrations with a bit of flair, putting Jesus Christ side by side with Iron Man and Captain America. Wait, does this make Jesus an honorary Avenger? A photo from a Mexican Catholic church has been circulating on Imgur and Reddit. The banner invites people to attend church during the Holy Week of Easter, possibly with the Avengers in attendance. The title, Pascua Juvenil. I'm not Spanish. I'm not exactly too sure how. Matthew, you translate. P-A-S-C-U-A-J-U-V-E-N-I-L. Something juvenile. Pascua Juvenil. I'm not sure. In tagline. Holy crap. (laughs) What's (laughs) <laughs> copy and paste that into the into the Skype chat. Just just the word. Copy and paste the word into Skype chat. Pasqua? Yeah. Uh, it looks like Pasqua uh, Juvenil. Alrighty. Well, the title of what you just said, in tagline, Yamados a la Misión Generamos Esperanza, roughly translated to Calls to the mission will generate hope are the same as a Facebook group for Youth Easter National, presumably a youth-focused event for Easter. I bring this up because this reminds me of a little bit of time uh, of, of going to church, like around Christmas time, especially Christmas Eve. And I remember when Lord of the Rings came out, the first Lord of the Rings came out, and it was really big for the religious folk. Because when Harry Potter came out, Harry Potter was the devil Oh, Lord of the Rings, it's the work of the Bible. It's a it's a biblical metaphor. Since all the Lord of the Rings movie came out around Christmas time, was released in theaters around Christmas time, they would always, at least the places I went to with my family, the Lutheran dude would mold Christmas Eve service around Lord of the Rings. So he would be talking about like using metaphors with Gollum and the ring and Frodo and all this stuff. But I, I really just don't see how they can really work the Avengers, in with Jesus and Easter, especially when you have Captain America and they have his Captain America shield and there's a cross in the middle, like in in the blue part. They're obviously trying to make Easter fun, but I remember Easter being fun when I was a kid. The idea of possibly getting plastic eggs with candy in it and possibly getting 25 cents in nickels and dimes in an egg was like finding the gold pot. What do you think about this? Do your kids need a Jesus Christ Easter Avengers mashup to get them amped for Easter religious studying? Uh, <laughs> no, you know, we got a pretty cool church, all things considered. So I, I really just think that's trying just a little bit too hard. I mean, so is it like after, you know, three days? So what, Loki is the one who puts Christ on the cross? And then after three days, the Hulk comes and rolls the stone away? And, uh, you know, I don't know. It just seems to me that... Um, if know, if that were the case, I'd go back to church. <laughs> or like it's the Avengers, you know, come together and Jesus is the newest Avenger. And they're like, you know... Uh, holy shit, Christ! And then Christ goes, that's my secret. I'm always holy, right? I don't know. I just, it seems to me that it d- doesn't, it, it just seems like it's trying way the fuck too hard. 
And yes, I just used an Avengers story and said, way the fuck in the same sentence. But what if Jesus turned out to be cockier <laughs> than Tony Stark? I don't know. You know what, though? It's time for the old Google magic here. Has Jesus ever been in a DC or Marvel comic? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> DC database. And Yahweh for the Marvel database. Yes, it turns out that Jesus has been in both the DC comics and the Marvel comics. Uh, so maybe maybe the, the church in Mexico is just taking from one of the storylines. Maybe either the Earth 616 storyline from Marvel or from the New Earth storyline in DC. I don't know. This this Oh my god, I can't believe that the really Avengers, happened. The Avengers, the rise of <laughs> Yahweh. <laughs> oh, that is well, amazing. I guess Thor Ragnarok could still work. I think Jesus would have a cameo in that one. <laughs> but what's a good... Okay, so there's Captain America Civil War. Wasn't there like a Civil War going on around that time? You know, the, around Jesus' time? Well, there was a... There was a uh, according to the Bible... Um, there was um, a civil war in heaven. That's how uh, the angels, right? And so you got Lucifer and a third of the angels fight the remaining, uh, fight Gabriel and the remaining two thirds of the other angels. And then they all go to hell and Lucifer becomes the devil and those angels become demons. And that is according to the Bible, how we got angels and demons. So that was oh, a the Tom Hanks war? movie. Sure. That too, I guess. <laughs> well, I think we definitely cemented our ticket to heaven with the opening of this episode. I'm reminded of a paraphrased version of De of Dennis Leary when he said, "I'm going to hell for that bit, <laughs> and you're all coming with me." <laughs> no, God, I swear I didn't laugh at that bit. I swear. Shut up and get on the bus with Quentin and Scorsese. You're going to fucking hell. Uh, okay. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, please, of course, always do that by following us at the SLS cast. We don't have any emails to, uh, speak of this week, but you, of course, can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. So, I guess without further ado, though, we should definitely get to some news. What do you say? Yes, sir. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> First up from me, from iHorror.com, by way of Patty Polly, Stephen King's It documentary on miniseries announced with Tim Curry. Yes, Pennywise seems to be taking over, uh, but I uh, let's start off again. Uh, let's see here, make sure I'm doing this. Yes, here, okay. Um, I am trying to see if I've got this right, because I'm definitely reading the whole wrong page of this article here. Let's see here. Yes, it looks like iHorror.com is getting the uh, Stephen, Steve, uh, an official Stephen King's It documentary featuring none other than the original smiling man of nightmares himself, Tim Curry. 
Yes, it turns out that uh, an internet guy from uh, JoeBlow.com here. It looks like shout out to Joe Blow for first bringing the news to the interwebs. And the rest of us couldn't be more thrilled from the makers of the Pet Cemetery doc, Unearth and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, and You're So Cool, Brewster's The Story of Fright Night. Dead Mouse Productions, the filmmakers, made the official announcement via their Facebook page that a doc entitled Pennywise, the story of it, is in the works, with more details coming soon. Yeah, baby. So that's going to be awesome. And then also, real quick here, just kind of a follow-up to the big old Oscar flub uh, from the Washington Post by way of Sandy Cohen and the AP. Uh PWC accountants won't be allowed to have their cell phones backstage during future Oscar telecasts. Film Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaacs sent an email to Academy members detailing the new protocols for announcing Oscar winners developed after the Best Picture flub at last month's Academy Awards. Academy of Motion Picture, I'm sorry, just a little over a month ago. Uh, let's see here. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences spokeswoman Tenny Melodian, uh, Melodononian, uh, confirmed the authenticity, authenticity of the email. Good Lord, I can't talk anymore. So basically, yeah, there, and the picture here that they have headlining this wonderful article <laughs> is of one of the guys who was responsible for the backstage stuff. He's literally staring at his phone and he's got four red envelopes under his arm. So, Pretty easy if you're just staring at your phone, how you might lose track of which envelopes are which. Um, any comments, Tim, on either one of those articles? It just still kind of tickles me what happened with the Oscars. You would think, like, if you're put in that situation, working for Price Waterhouse Coopers, to be in that position, you, you, you had to put in, like, your dues. You know, like, you paid your dues to, to be there. Why? I, I don't think I would bring my phone with me, let alone turn it on. Good. I mean, nobody should have their phone if you're working backstage. In fact, you come across looking like an asshole when you are a worker working a, a fucking ceremony like that and snapping pictures of movie stars. If this guy has been around these people, does he have to keep snapping pictures of movie stars to post on social media? I don't know. It just tickles me how dumb some of these people are when they don't fully realize and understand how awesome of a situation that they're in. Why would they go ahead and jeopardize it? Um, and as for the It documentary, I think that's awesome. I really don't know too much about the making of the 90s It made-for-TV movie. But ever since I was a kid, it would freak me the hell out when I would open up the Houston Chronicle and see what was showing on TV. And every time that movie was showing, it would always be this big ad of Tim Curry as it, as Pennywise, holding a balloon. And it would just freak me and all the other kindergartners out because we knew what Pennywise did to kids. So, I don't know, it'd be interesting to, to hear about the making of it and the effect it had on young, impressionable kindergartners like myself at that time. Right on, right on. All right, well, take it away, sir. What do you got for us? So, first up, a pair of Variety.com articles. First up being that Don Rickles passed away within the past week. Legendary insult comic dies at 90. This here is written by Richard Natalie. I know we have all heard about this by now, but we gotta, we, we need to mention 
Don Rickles on the show, because not only was he a great comedian, but he was also a very good actor. Abrasive comic Don Rickles, the honorary Rat Pack member and celebrity roast guest, whose career spanned six decades, has died he was 90. Rickles died Thursday morning at his home in Los Angeles from kidney failure, his longtime publicist Paul Sheffrin confirmed he would have turned 91 on May 8th. Though he appeared in films and on television, Rickles's mainstay was always nightclub performances appearing in Las Vegas and elsewhere into his late 80s. He also found late success as the voice of Mr. Potato Head in the Toy Story films, which were exceptional box office performers and popped up frequently on late night talk shows. Rickles's career had its ups and downs as comedic tastes changed, and his curmudgeonly persona was sometimes out of kilter with audience tastes. But he survived long after many of his contemporaries had disappeared into retirement, and when he was hot, he was a potent club headliner, insulting his audience with his two key signature phrase, dummy and hockey puck. His attempt at series TV did not succeed because of the astringency of Rickles' personality. His serious side, however, was occasionally put to good use in guest-starring roles in episodic TV in the occasional dramatic role in movies such as his first, Run Silent, Run Deep, in Martin Scorsese's 1995 film Casino. End all quotes there. The article does go on for quite a bit more going to more in-depth of his uh, comedic television and movie appearances. Again, that was Variety.com. Don Rickles' Legendary Insult Comic Dies at 90, written by Richard Natal. And now my second Variety piece of news. Uh, This one also pertaining to the Oscars, also meaning Matt's piece of news pertaining to the Oscars, so this one does also. Oscars... Will new animated voting procedures hurt smaller films? This here is written by Christopher Tapley, and it says this. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced annual rule in eligibility changes this morning, uh, this morning being the morning of April 7th. But while most of the attention was on a shift in the documentary race that would render multi-part series, like last year's winner, O.J. Made in America, ineligible... What struck me was a tweak elsewhere. Going forward, nominations in the animated feature category will be open to anyone in the Academy willing to join a nominating committee. That puts it closer to the British Academy model and counter to the process of nearly every other feature field, where members of the separate branches are charged with determining nominations. Animated nominees will also be decided via preferential ballot now, like the best picture category, rather than a numerical scoring system. But things have always been a little different in this category. Previously, the committee was supposed to be a 50-50 composition of animators and members from other branches, though that process has always been opaque, and it frequently yielded a low voter turnout, which is what the Academy is hoping to change with this shift. Part of the problem has always been the inclusion of short films in the animated feature branch. One source says talks have been underway for years to split them up, and that may well be on the horizon. But for now, the organization is simply opening things up to wider cross-section and allowing members interested in voting to opt in, crossing the fingers that it will mean more people will vote. And I will end that article there. 
Keep in mind that movies that have been nominated in the Best Animated category might not have been all that too worthy of being nominated. I mean, we always see Disney being nominated. And usually Disney wins over a movie like last year, Lucky is Kubo and the Two Strings. And then you also see movies like The Little Prince. That was one of Matt's favorites movie, favorite animated movies from last year, which was a Netflix movie that got snubbed in the animated nomination category. But movies like that, movies like The Little Prince, movies like uh, My Life as a Cucumber, and all the other foreign animated movies that have been nominated in the past, were more likely to have been nominated because of the people who were allowed to vote. And when you open up voting within that category, you're letting people in whose specialties lie somewhere else. Normally, you're in animation. Therefore, you are exposed to animation all the time. Foreign animation or uh, modern American animation, older techniques, newer techniques, you're well-versed in the varieties of animated feature films. And so you can nominate or take part in nominating uh, more obscure movies or obscure to the common casual moviegoer. Now, Matt, do you think, because apparently this is an issue with the author of this Variety article and many others as well, I was doing a little research on it, do you think this will have an effect on what type of movies do get nominated in this category? I guess yes and no. If there, it's Okay, so it sounds like they're... To make sure I understand it right, they're changing the kinds of people who are eligible to vote on Correct. the pieces. Okay. Yeah, for, but they're for not the animated changing, feature film. Okay, but they're not changing the process by which the initial field of candidates is chosen, right? They're just changing who gets to vote on it. Oh no, it's it's all the above. It's who get yeah, it's the process of choosing who will uh get picked to be nominated. And then they're also widening the pool of people who can vote on said picks. Correct. Okay. Um, so yes, I clearly it's going to change, but I don't. I I, I don't think it's as gloomy um, in terms of smaller people getting screwed because I think the more you open it up, the easier it is to have people look at the dark horses, so to speak, or the smaller indie films and go, Oh wow. And you'll also have, you also have the possibility of having more people go, man, I'm tired of Disney winning every year. So it, uh, you know, yes. And it could go the other way, you know? Yeah. I guess you could end up with a whole bunch of Disney files and all five movies or Disney movies or something. I mean, you know, um, I could see it go that way too, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're actually trying to do this, to widen the field, not narrow it. And perhaps it's because it's the exact same kinds of movies that keep getting nominated and ultimately winning. I mean, fucking Zootopia, seriously? Um, that they're like, okay, maybe we need to widen this pool a little bit. So, um, I'm, I'm at least willing to see how it goes. Let's see what, let's see what we get for next year's nominations. And, uh, you know, I would say put a pin in this article and hang on to it so that we can come back. And see what happened. Pin dropped. And how about Don Rickles? Were you a big Don Rickles fan? Super huge Don Rickles fan. Really? I was so sad that I never got a chance to see him live. But my mom and my stepdad did. And they had like third row center seats. And my mom was secretly hoping that she would get picked on. 
but she didn't want to overdo it because my stepdad is very easily embarrassed in those kinds of situations. And he was, he was literally afraid he would look at or make eye contact or do something to, to attract Rickles' attention, in which case, you know, you know it's over if that happens. Well, how, how so, long ago did they go see him? How long has it been? Three years ago. Two wow, or three okay. years ago. Yeah, he so, was in yeah, top form just up until, you know, this past year or so or whenever. I Yeah, last year we were driving to Oklahoma um, for Father's Day. Father's Day last year we were driving to Oklahoma and one of the casino signs that we passed had Don Rickles on it. Yeah, I've had so, I mean, a lot of chances to see him out here and stupid me, I never got a chance. It's just, man, you know, once you hit a certain age and you've been – you know, performing for a period of time, once you are a legend, you can really upsell the shit out of your tickets. <laughs> I just couldn't afford well, to go see you, Don Rickles. You also get the bon- you also get the benefit of <laughs> every show could be the last show. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what, god damn it? I think that's a joke Rickles would appreciate. So um yeah. Uh but I am definitely yeah, it is definitely a bummer. Um he is um I mean, really, in terms of true comedians, um, strictly speaking, I guess you could say Newhart's still alive. Um, but, I mean, he's even, like, he's even 10 years after Rickles, really. So, I mean, that's kind of it. We don't really have, we don't really have anybody else anymore. Yeah, there's Norman Lear. He's not a comedian as much as... Well, he, I mean, comedians. Wrote, That's why I said yeah. true. Yes, he he's 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 the one. Um, he's the guy most people forget <laughs> was like Rat Pack era, and you know, considered technically part of the Rat Pack. But um, no, I mean, but strictly like comedian speaking, I mean, it's kind of it. We're yeah, they, they, well, we, Jerry we Lewis, no I guess. But then again, Jerry Lewis hasn't done stand up and Jerry. But Jerry Lewis never did the Dean Martin roast because they were fighting that during that period. Yeah. So we don't even have, we don't even have that connection. I mean, I guess you could say Jerry Lewis is still alive because of Martin and Lewis, but in terms of the roasts and Rat Pack stuff, and uh, Lewis was never a part of that. So, just sadness. And he's going to remain bitter to the end. <laughs> and Martin. All right. Ah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's see here. So, okay. Let me just close with some, just so we can weigh in on something. This will be my last piece of news because uh, we still have a lot of things to get to. So, from the Daily News, New York Daily News, nydailynews.com, by way of confidential, um, it says here that the late Carrie Fisher will appear in Star Wars Episode Nine. says brother Todd Fisher. Yes! That's right. The late Carrie Fisher will make an appearance from beyond the grave in the final Star Wars movie of the new trilogy. Her brother Todd Fisher tells Confidential. Uh, after months of speculation about Carrie's future in the sci-fi saga, Todd has revealed that the that Disney bosses wanted to bring Princess Leia back for episode nine. And he said he and Carrie's daughter, Billy Lord, have granted the studio rights to use recent footage for the finale. It is understood that CGI will not be used to recreate Leia. Uh, Todd Fisher says, quote, both of us were like, yes, how do you take her out of it? And the answer is you don't. As he, and this was, of course, he said, as he attended the opening night gala of the TCM Film Festival in Las 
in Los Angeles, celebrating in the heat of the night. Uh, says, quote, she's as much a part of it as anything, and I think her presence now is even more powerful than it was, like Obi-Wan. When the saber cuts him down, he becomes more powerful. I feel like that's what's happened with Carrie. I think the legacy should continue, end quote. To what extent Leia will figure in this, into the storyline is not clear. Uh, quote, I'm not the only one, uh, I'm not the only part in that equation, but I think that the people deserve to have her, end quote, said Fisher. Um, there's a little bit more to that article, about a third more to that article. Uh, what do you think there, Tim? I, I personally am very excited because I think they will be able to use the remaining footage that they have and then effectively split what she's doing so that some of it can appear in episode nine and then whatever they need to have for plot advancement in episode eight will work. Um, I'm sure there's also tons of outtake footage and stuff from even episode seven that they could probably feed in in certain other ways. Um, so I'm I'm actually really excited to see how this works out because um I know we had kind of speculated, wow, you know, are they gonna like have her on a planet or something that blows up or whatever? I mean, how do you you know, how do you write her out without showing anything? Well but as long as you... as long as they don't like shoehorn her in, or as long as it's not that obvious and I, I'm that's one thing I'm afraid of. It's like the whole grandma, grandma Tarkin thing. It's like if you were sparse with how you used it, it would have been great and it would have been fine. I'm just kind of worried that they're going to figure out some cool, have some cool technological breakthrough where there's going to be some CGI involved and they're going to like extend a scene that's not as long or they're going to like superimpose her in a scene and it's going to be a little bit too obvious. And I just really hope they don't do that. And... I think okay, it's a I think that would imply CGI. I think that would imply CGI, which they already said they're not going to do. So it seems to me that they're literally just going to take what they have and then recreate or not recreate, but but edit that so that they have a reason to insert the scene or scenes uh, into the last movie where they would where they probably would have kept it all in episode eight. Yeah. Well, this is when they hire back George Lucas to come in and. <laughs> do some old school filmmaking and try to add her. Or, or Quite something. frankly, I'm I'm just waiting for the final insult where they hire his ex wife to edit. <laughs> so I'm at this point. That's what I'm waiting for to happen. Because <laughs> for the record, while Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture, uh, it did not win, but it did win for editing, and she was the editor. So. You, you ever wonder why Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were the way they were? Just remember who edited them, okay? <laughs> and remember who was editing after the divorce. Just saying. Uh, anyway. <laughs> All right. I will close out the news with uh, these two pieces of news. And I'm very interested in hearing, Matt, what you got to say. First up, via filmschoolrejects.com, the Weinstein Company called their lawyer, and he's a good one too. The MPAA gave three generations an R rating, and the Weinstein Company isn't having it. It's written by Francesca Fall, and it says this. The Motion Picture Association of America decided that the Weinstein Company's film Three Generations deserves an R rating. The MPAA claims that strong language and sexual references mean that the film isn't suitable for young viewers without parental consent. 
However, the Weinstein Company claims the rating would bar a necessary film from reaching a broad audience. Three Generations tells the story of Ray, played by Elle Fanning, a transgendered teenager. In the film, Ray and his mother Maggie, played by Naomi Watts, must search for Ray's father to obtain consent for Ray to start his transition. Meanwhile, Ray's grandmother, played by Susan Sarandon, struggles to accept Ray's transformation from granddaughter to grandson. Director and co-writer Gabby Delal emphasizes that she, quote, wanted to speak to kids, to parents, and to grandparents everywhere in a common language of love and inclusion about a subject matter that is not only real and complicated, but one that is important and alive today, end quote. Both Dalal and the Weinstein Company fear that an R rating would ban younger audiences and families from seeing the film and having a necessary discussion about the issue it raises, or issues it raises. The consensus between Dalal, Sarandon, and Watts, who executive produced the film, is that the rating could limit the film's reach. Further, it could hurt the film's marketability and bottom line. Uh, the article does go on and talks a little bit about the 2010 Weinstein film uh, Blue Valentine and the King's Speech. Blue Valentine was given a NC-17 rating due to its subject matter, and the King's Speech was slapped with an R rating due to a scene which uh, included uh, some salty language. It was when uh, the King is learning how to speak properly, and some of the little tongue twisters in the, in the sentences that Jeffrey Rush, the teacher, the mentor, was giving him, it was it was a little spunky and goofy and salty, and a lot of people felt that was unnecessary and just was there for comedic value. What do you think about this? I, I think this is very interesting. It doesn't really talk about it, there being any bad language in it. It doesn't say anything about there being any like nudity or anything like that. Oh, actually, it does say strong language, but it seems like mainly they're lying on their claim that sexual references is what gave this movie an R rating. So I guess strong language could mean really anything. What do you think? Do you have any comments, questions, concerns about this particular well, issue? Okay. Um I I I want to be as even-handed as possible. And while it is certainly possible that they um are trying to cover all their bases and make it an R rating to make sure that only adults go and see it. Um there's a lot of really heavy stuff that goes on in families where um where where a transition happens and it's not all it's not all pleasant it's not all easy now does that mean that it's automatically r rated no but it also leads to a lot of stuff where um you could have a big shouting match where you get two or three f bombs and as we all know, that's enough to drive things into an R. Um, there might be some, um, even from, even from a medical perspective, there might be, um, body shots and stuff like that, where again, um, it, it's not sexualized, but it's there. And so that can up your rating as well. Um, it seems to me that this is definitely written from the perspective of supporting the movie instead of supporting the process and not saying that the process is right or wrong. Um, but you kind of have to bear that in mind, uh, when, when you're reading that kind of stuff. So I, I think if nothing else, um, 
it, it's it's piqued my curiosity to see the movie, which I hope that if nothing else, that encourages other people to do because then they will see it regardless of rating. Which if it is some kind of subversive thing that the that the MPA is trying to do, then they lose because people go and see it anyway. Um, and if it's legitimate, then people will still see it and be like, well, yeah, I would probably give it an R rating too. So that is where I land on that. And you landed quite nicely, if I do say so. Why, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and then <laughs> I'm just going to close out the news with this last piece from the Los Angeles Times... Com. Theater owner group CEO blaming theatrical windows for piracy is completely crazy. This here is written by Ryan Fogner, the contact reporter, and says this. The head of the group re- representing the nation's cinema operators voiced support Tuesday for potentially groundbreaking talks between theater owners and studios to deliver movies sooner to the home. Quote, let's stop fighting publicly about the future of our release dates. This is about growing the pie for everyone, end quote. John Fithian, president and executive and chief executive of the National ASIN, <laughs> the National Association of Theater Owners, told reporters at the annual CinemaCon gathering in Las Vegas. But Fithian fired back at suggestions from some studios that the current business model, in which movies are made available on home video about 90 days after their release in theaters, encourages copyright theft. He called that idea, quote, completely crazy, end quote. Fithian said that the vast majority of piracy happens when a movie is released in theaters and when it is made available digitally. Quote, all you're doing is accelerating the second wave of piracy, end quote, he said. Studios including Warner Brothers, Universal, and 20th Century have been talking with cinema owners for months about cutting down the 90-day wait period. Previous efforts have met with backlash from theater owners worried that shorter so-called theatrical windows would cannibalize movie ticket sales. Studio hopes that shorter windows will help reverse years of steep decline in home entertainment revenue. Major theater owners now support that goal. Quote, finding a way to grow the home market is important for us as well as these studios, end quote, Fivian said. Quote, it's tricky, but it's doable, end quote. Virtually every studio except Disney has been pushing for a new windowing model of 45 days or less, but the studios disagree on the details. They're legally prohibited from negotiating among themselves, making it virtually impossible to come to an industry consensus on the length of the window for the price of early home video. Many executives want to charge people 30 bucks to 50 bucks for early home viewing. Some want an even more truncated window of 17 days. Um, the article does go on there. Some more, if you want to read more about it, do check out this LA Times article. Theater Owner Group, CEO, blaming theatrical windows for piracy is completely crazy. Yeah, um... Yeah, uh, I know we've talked about this a bunch, but it's interesting hearing this from the theater owner group. What do you think about this? Do you think piracy is linked linked to the window of time in between when a movie is released at a theater to when it's available digitally or on Blu-ray DVD? I think for bad movies, yes. <laughs> and for good movies, kind of. Um, you know, 
bad movies that end up in the theater, they desperately need to get those to Blu-ray and DVD as fast as they can so that they can help boost any kind of viewing potential uh, for money down the line. Uh, the the big money makers, yes, those get pirated, but um, I believe from the stuff that we've read, those are generally people who have seen them already. Um, and so the the movie studios kind of already got their money from them. Um, so I can see how that would work, but I mean, at the same time, um, remember like when we talked about this last time, I think this is when you start seeing this whole back and forth begin of, we're not making money with you. We're going to go do something else. And, um, I think, I, 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 I think maybe these are the opening salvos in that war. And that's what I have to say. At least to me this year, there seems to be an uptick in movies where people are wanting just to wait until it comes out on VOD or Voodoo or whatever, like Chips. I remember a lot of people were looking forward to seeing the movie Chips. Obviously, nobody turned out to go see the movie Chips. And after talking to people, they said, yeah, I'm not going to go see it at the movie theater. I'll watch it on Voodoo or I'll watch it online or I'll do this or I'll do that. So... I, I, hopefully that movie gets, well, not, not, I don't give a shit about it, but hopefully Warner Brothers, I think Warner Brothers released the movie, will release it for home viewing relatively soon to cover their ass. So, I think that brings us to the end of the movies, right? And now it's uh, time for the creme de la crap. You mean the end of the news? Into the creme de la crap? Yes, that too. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have a, an opening for creme de la crap. Probably just like a long fart. No, I, I don't. I, I'm you know I'm just not a fan of the fart sound. I don't know. I'm here. You know you'd think a dude right into fart humor. Never really been into fart humor. I don't know what it is. Anyway, um, so yeah, creme de la crap. This time on creme de la crap, um, we have 1980s musical saga, the apple. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. The apple is success. There ain't no pride! There ain't no shame! There ain't no sympathy! The apple brings you everything. What about happiness? I wanted to release Phoebe from a contract. Cheers. Where is she? I stand alone. The apple is the temptation. The apple is the experience. Take the apple! Whoa! Praise the apple! Apple is the forbidden fruit. Come and take me and shake me and mow me and make me and fill me up 
see I got a chance to you. The apple takes your soul. Special experience in movie-going entertainment. The Apple. So I was the one that made Matt watch The Apple. Here is a little bit of background behind The Apple. The Apple is one of 45 films directed by cult filmmaker Manaham Golan, and one of the many films produced by the cult production company Canon Films. Both Golan and Canon achieved cult status for the sheer number of films they produced throughout the late 60s and early 90s, and how embarrassingly crappy 97% of said films were. To put it in perspective, Canon Films is responsible for Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. The Apple was released on uh, November 21st, 1980, shot in West Germany in the fall of 1979. They used interiors and exteriors of shopping malls, airports, and industrial parks for scenes calling for Orwellian-type corporate lobbies and offices. The Apple could go down in history as one of the most literal movies ever made. The story is set in 1994, a distant dystopian future. Alfie and Bibi are a folkish guitar duo from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada. They participate in a music contest called the World Vision Song Festival, which ultimately determines the popularity of consumer music trends. Whoever wins this contest becomes the current hot-ticket superstar. The folksy duo become a threat and end up losing to another duo named Pandy and Dandy, the backed ringers of the contest's puppet master, Mr. Boogaloo, owner of Boogaloo International Music, a multinational and ruler of the music industry. Within BB's performance, the devilish Mr. Boogaloo does notice a spark of talent in sex appeal in which he could market and make profitable. Therefore, Mr. Boogaloo offers both Alfie and Bibi a record contract in which he promises fame and fortune. Bibi takes the apple, quite literally in one of the more fully memorable music numbers, and Alfie does not, opting instead to call out Mr. Boogaloo's devilish, profitable intentions. Now, will Alfie put an end to Mr. Boogaloo's sinister plan and get Bibi back? Or will Bibi live out her life as a disco glam fascist, jaded forever by fame and fortune? And that's the basic story. Matthew, your your general thoughts on viewing the apple. Complete silence. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um... It was recommended to me that I be drunk when I watch this movie. Um, I, you know, I'm both sorry and not sorry that I was not drunk for this, for this movie. Um, I did, however, show the trailer to people I wanted to have watch it with me, and they all turned it down. 
they were wise. Um, I would just like to read the following because this perfectly sums up my experience. This is actually from tvguide.com. Um, and I don't have the, the author of this review, but it is from tvguide.com. You can go to slash movies slash the apple and go to the review. Uh, it has a one star rating there. I would actually give it zero fucking stars. Um, but we don't do that for this section. And I just want to say this. <clears throat> All right. Quote, the Apple was clearly designed to duplicate the success of the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975 and failed dismally, in large part because the music is so stupendously banal. And its highlights include a camp... <laughs> A camply hellish orgy sequence, a dirty disco number, and an astonishing sequence in which every man, woman, and child drops what he or she is doing for the hour of exercise mandated by fitness fascists of the future. Ah, <laughs> uh, the lesson making a cult hit is harder than it looks. I will end the quote there. Um, it's true. It's like these people saw the, um, it's like these people saw Rocky Horror Picture Show and said, you know, because I believe it was Fox who did Rocky Horror Picture Show and, um, and, and they, they killed it. They, they they were so convinced that it wasn't going to make any money that they refused to publicize it. And then, of course, they were proved right in initial theater runs because they didn't publicize it. So it was really hard to get good numbers on it. And yet it eventually arose and, and created a great cult classic film that has lasted today. And it has definitely made way more than its money back. Now, it's like they went the other way with this movie. They're like, hey... Well, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And there's a reason. There's a reason why you shouldn't. It's there is there is one small redeeming thing from this movie, uh, and and that is um, Vladek Shabal, who plays Mister Boogaloo. He is so delightfully amazing. He's the only thing that you like. Sit there and go. It's kind of like. If um, Flash Gordon and Rocky Horror Picture Show had a drunken one-night stand, this is the product of that unholy coupling. And yet, the evil uh, wizard guy or whatever from Flash Gordon is very elegantly, um, you know, kind of like cross-sectioned here in Vladek Shabal's Mr. Boogaloo. He is the only redeeming factor, redeeming thing in this movie. His shit's legitimately funny, right? He's like, he's like the funny, he's like the thing that you're, you're, you know, you're glad you're laughing at. It's bad, but it's like he knows it's bad and he doesn't care. He's there just having fun. And so you buy into it then. Outside of that, I can't believe Catherine Mary Stewart had a career after this. She was in The Last Starfighter. She was the girlfriend in The Last Starfighter. Wow. Um, I just, I, I just, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> in, the, in the parlance of our times, SMH, y'all, SMH. 
I would not consider this creme de la crap. I would just consider this crap. This might very well be the worst movie released in 1980. This might very well be the worst movie released. (laughs) 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 And as a side note, there is a riff tracks of this movie. I just found out. Um, So have fun, people. If you want to experience this movie and not, uh, and if, if you're on more of Matt's side, check out the riff tracks. But I think what gets me about this film is that it takes place in 1994 when the movie is clearly stuck in that flashy, gaudy, musically shit-tastic time of the late 70s and early 80s, the time when the hippie movement was cliched and glam disco had already run its course, where being a hippie wasn't cool and disco officially sucked. You know, it, whereas like 1977 Saturday Night Fever accurately kind of sort of captured a moment in culture and a time, the apple failed even, like, wear its premise on its sleeve and you know, and kind of be cheeky with what it was trying to say. As if the filmmakers themselves honestly felt like glam disco was too good to die. <laughs> that it was going to be, ar- like, they honestly thought it was going to be around until 1994 and be more Orwellian and, and, and futuristic. I just think it's hilarious how they thought that this shit music would be the music of the early 90s. I mean, compared to what we ended up getting in the late 80s, early 90s, like grunge, alternative rock, Nirvana, some people literally thought this might be the music of the future. When disco, by the time this movie came out in November of 1980, disco was already kind of going down in the dumps. So, Matt, you mentioned that you like the characters, uh, the, the bad guy, the villain character dude, Boogaloo. Yes. Did you also feel that all the characters in the movie felt like they were from different movies? Like, none of them belong together. Like, Boogaloo is this animated Disney villain. Alfie is played by an obvious (laughs) non-American and comes across as a soft-spoken and is constantly oblivious to his own talent. I mean, his own good looks, you know, he should have been okay with. Um, But he doesn't really, you know, like, he doesn't, he's so dumb, he doesn't, fully realized that he got fucked over by his girlfriend you know and he's kind of like the character of tony in the movie version of west side story alfie has hope and whimsy in his voice but then unlike tony in the movie version of west side story he does not carry that whimsy and hope very well alfie does not he's, he, alfie's like alfie could have come from the movie alfie what's it all about <laughs> <laughs> That's Alfie in a nutshell. (laughs) What's it all about? (laughs) So he's like uh, from Scotland or something, and he has this horrible, wispy, not wispy, but soft kind of voice. And, you know, I have hope and all this stuff and very kind of dramatic, you know, very much like Tony from West Side Story. And then he like goes home and all of a sudden you're in this like Brooklyn shitty part of town and which I guess is Germany. And then you meet this woman who you think she is his mother. She's like very Brooklyn, very Jewish looking until you're like, wait a minute, that's not his mother because he is now behind her grabbing her breasts like full on. It just doesn't make any sense. But then like for me, my issue with Mr. Boogaloo was not portrayed. I I thought that he was not portrayed as that bad of a guy especially compared to today's, like, consumerism society. You know, like any other truly successful 
network CEO or big wig label or media company, studio executive and advertiser or whatever, Mr. Boogaloo just wants to keep on writing that success. You know, his true deviousness is actually downplayed a great deal, making room for his outrageous, like, flamboyance. And the flamboyance is only topped by his flaming right-hand manservant, who goes by the name of Shake. And then Boogaloo's, like, musical theater singing flourishes also kind of trump his 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 sinisterness, I guess. And, you know, and I feel the same way with the, with the music and dance numbers. They're obviously ripped off from other popular songs and other canned disco songs. Uh, none of the music and lyrics and dance numbers really match with the story. And what's funny, Matthew, I don't know if you ever, if you or your wife ever watched Dancing with the Stars or not, or have ever seen Dancing with the Stars, but I believe this is right, that the, one of the judges, Len Goodman, was the choreographer for this movie. And he thought that he was going to win an Oscar for Best Choreography in 1981. He was up against Bob Fosse for the movie All That Jazz. And little did he know, he did not get that nomination, not only because the choreography and dance musical numbers absolutely sucked, but there is not an Oscar category for Best Choreography. (laughs) But the choreography... He incorporated like a hodgepodge of different styles of dance, you know, because it's 1980. You got choreography inspired by the various styles of popular dance at the time, like New Age and rap and Broadway show tunes and, you know, fucking disco. So it's just a hodgepodge kind of movie with I think there is some good to it, like the energy is all right. You know, some of some of the interesting things that hold the movie together is the idea of how, you know, like humanity is completely engrossed in new media and fooled into consuming what is popular. And like for a while, American Idol was somewhat similar to the music contest portrayed in the beginning of this movie. Like if you were one of the finalists in American Idol, you were treated to record contracts, movie contracts, fame and fortune. Now that the market is flooded with contest shows and variety shows and reality shows, the winners of all those shows aren't really treated the same. But I don't know. Was there any good aspects to the Apple in your mind? Um, The ending credits. <laughs> really Dude, that's sorry. Huh? it really i mean okay um opening sequence right movie opens with bim right that's the that, that's the uh everybody's dancing the aerobic thing and all that kind of shit um let's compare that to the opening sequence of roller boogie okay um, both of those are immediately trying to set the tone and do it in a musical number. Now, while it, while it's definitely more purely musical, uh, conventional musical style in the Apple versus, you know, using a soundtrack in Roller Boogie, you, you are immediately put into, and, and don't get me wrong, I still was ultimately went no on Roller Boogie. Um, but, Roller Boogie at least knew how to set the tone of the movie. They, you know, you immediately got the fact that this was roller uh, roller skating. I mean, they had share. It was really bouncy. I mean, it had a lot of fun and punch to it and everything. Um, and yet at the same time, it was so intensely over the top 
that everything that was good about it was being undone. And so you're kind of laughing at it and mocking it, but you're still, you're at least enjoying it despite how it's not working out well. Now you contrast that with the apple when it opens up and you're just kind of like, none of these things fit. It, 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 <laughs> I mean, yes, the TV Guide article refers to fitness fascists, but that's the only way you can explain the explain the way you've got nuns and police officers and kids and all this stuff dropping literally dropping everything to start this routine and while they kind of bring it eventually bring it into this like concert setting or whatever um you there's just no unifying concept other than just random people doing this and so it's it's not bad in a fun way it's just bad it's bad storytelling and and it doesn't do anything well from there i mean some of the dialogue is pretty funny just because it's so piss poor and i will say that alfie's seemingly out of place characterization in the middle is a wonderful contrast to everything else that's going on but it's it's not something that makes it 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 kind of makes it watchable bad it's 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 watchable and it's still terrible but you're not laughing at it and having a good time with it and that's why i say it it just i mean it doesn't really work the only again it's just um with uh again it's just with mr boogaloo right and then like what's uh when like god or whatever comes out of the fucking rolls royce and shit right um even in that, it's like <laughs> something like that you should laugh at. But by the time you get there, it's just like, oh my god! Now you're. It's like you're continually waiting for the other shoe to drop on a like seven hundred foot beast, right? Like a millipede. Imagine a millipede, right? That and all of these feet. And you just keep waiting for the other shooter drop, and it does, but then another one does, and another one does, and another one does, and another one does. And then things that should be good. I mean, George S. Clinton comes out of nowhere in this movie. There are things that should be just amazingly funny, even though they're bad, that it's just kind of, again, that just kind of make it, huh, well, at least I'll keep watching. And then you've got, like, God literally stepping out of a fucking Rolls Royce, which wasn't supposed to happen. They actually put that in there in a different... So, there's something. Um, Yeah, I just... I mean, there are things that will make it watchable, and some things that will make you chuckle or smile, but nothing for me that's inherently good outside... For me, um, so bad it's good, other than Mr. Boogler. So, I I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult and shit on it, you know out of spite i just i mean it's it's god dude it's just not funny um it's just it's seriously it's painful to watch so not cream of the crap for you or creme de la crap. no creme de la crap. no no i will have to go with yes creme de la crap for me um i i just think for me what uh, the movie I, it's not funny I just think it's the sheer ridiculousness of what was funny at the time. I I I thought it was really funny, like the 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 overly flamboyant manservant. Uh, you see a lot of characters like that from that time, 
And it just really doesn't work. And I think on top of stuff like that, the movie had a pretty good energy that I thought made the time, for me at least, a little bit worthwhile. And I personally think this is a movie that, you know, obviously, because we both you know had different experiences and liked it differently, maybe it's left for your experience. Whether if you watch it with riff tracks or you watch it stoned or drunk or... Uh, maybe you haven't eaten for, maybe that's the best way of watching it. Maybe you haven't eaten for a week and you're starving and you have to watch this movie because maybe you'll get a real apple at the end. Therefore, you might like it and you might get something else out of it. It might be more of a holy experience. I don't know, but it is definitely shitty, awful film. But to me, at least, it was creme de la crap worthy. Right on, right on. Okay, well, next week's bonus segment, we're going to hop back over to 3 Squared again, and we are going to be doing our saddest movie moments. We're going to be picking saddest movie moments from films. However, not Disney Pixar, because it's too easy. It's too easy. There will be no scenes from Up. There will be no Finding Nemo. All right, none of that kind of shit. So uh, we're going to pick our saddest movie moments, literal true tearjerker moments um, from movies. All right, then that's what we'll be doing for next week. So without further ado, I believe it's time for the movies, is it not, sir? Sounds good. Then here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> And this week's films are The Zookeeper's Wife and Mean Dreams. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? How about Mean Dreams? Mean Dreams. Okay, 2016 Canadian coming-of-age thriller films directed by Nathan Morlando, uh, written by Kevin Coughlin and Ryan Grasby. Uh, stars Soph- uh, Sophie Nielsen. Uh, Josh Wiggins and Bill Paxton. Uh, basically, what we have here is Jonas and Casey meet out in the country, and uh, they kind of have this wonderful little, you know, budding romance relationship and uh, young kids and first love and all that kind of stuff. Um, at which point, we are then introduced to the obstacle to their little romance, which is uh Casey's dad, Wayne, uh played by Bill Paxton, in what has got to be the most amazingly creepy role he's ever played. And we we basically find out um Wayne is just not a good guy. He's not a good guy at all. Um eventually Wayne and Jonas kind of um have words, if you will. And um, Jonas ends up doing something that really pisses Wayne off. Um, and, and ultimately, Jonas and Casey go on the run. Will they survive? What will happen? Will Wayne make good on being bad? Shenanigans ensue, as I say. So, um, I thought this movie... I mean, I'm sorry, look. I... I wanted, I mean, I, I could see giving this movie a 4.75 because it's a little bit cliched. Um, but goddamn, these performances, dude. 
I mean to tell you, I was like fucking floored all the way around. Um, the, uh, especially Josh Wiggins. What the shit? Where'd this kid come from? Holy fuck, dude. Seriously. Um, they, the movie just completely understands what it is and doesn't try to be any more than that, which is why sometimes it feels a little bit cliched. Um, but at the same time, it powers through the cliche with the strength of the performances. Great writing. Nothing spectacular in the cinematography department, except that, again, it doesn't need to be because it knows the story it's trying to tell. It stays single, it stays on a single track while it tells the story. And I think, I, I think that, um, the teenage romance stuff is where it's kind of cliched because even when they're like, you know, um, on the run and they have their kind of clashes it it feels it doesn't feel forced it just really feels like it feels typical and i think that that's actually a hidden strength of the movie which is why i don't pull uh any rating from it is because teenagers in certain ways are going to be typical and and they use that both to their advantage and disadvantage. And I think it's very, very cleverly written, excellently portrayed, five stars. I love this movie. I will be watching this movie again. Faux show. Oh, what do you got there, Tim? Wow, that's great. I think for this being one of Bill Paxton's final films, I think he has one more coming out, but this released before his passing... I think this was a good one to to go out on, really. I don't know if that's insensitive or not, but I thought his performance was really good. This is a, a high-quality indie film. I, I was giving it, in my mind, a high rating up until about maybe the midway point or so. Um, once the kids are on the run, that's where the movie started misstepping. And... I give this one 3.5 out of 5. It's a very good movie. Surprised it didn't get a somewhat of a bigger theatrical release, because I think it does deserve it. Um, I think the kids, for the most part, are really good. The young girl um, took me a little bit a little bit longer to warm up to her, because it didn't seem like how she was performing, like what she was doing were character choices. I just thought maybe she was an inexperienced actress. It kind of worked. But really, the two things that bothered me the most was one being that when the young couple would trade dialogue for a particular period of time, a bit of time, you know, it would just start feeling a little bit like like it just wasn't genuine, you know, like it wasn't real. Like they were just trading dialogue to trade dialogue. They're spending all this time together and they still speak the same way to each other. I think there's a connection. I think there's love. Um, there's a part in the movie where um, they're together for a period of time, and there's a bond, especially a bond with uh, between the with the, you know the boy and the girl. Like the boy is feeling the bond with the girl, uh, but you're not too sure about the girl with the boy. But when the girl does something, and not not I don't want to sound like she turns on him or anything, but there is a kind of a little bit of a character change there at a you know, uh, they're kind of close to the end. You just really don't feel like nothing was too much at stake emotionally for the kid. Like he was just an emotional young boy who just did not have any experience in, uh, with love, you know, with, with relationships. And if you look at it that way, you know, it, it works, but it just kind of felt like the writing was not as strong. 
that was one of the big missteps in my mind, just whenever they would speak for a period of time, for any length of time more than just a couple minutes, the dialogue would run together. It sounded like the scene that came before it, and um, it just really doesn't really progress too much within the two between the two of them, personally. And then lastly, I didn't care for the ending. I don't want to spoil it, because I know a lot of you probably have not seen the movie, but I was looking for that bang at the end, and I really felt nothing. I really wanted more of a relationship between the girl and her father. You know, I wanted that to feel that conflict. Like, can she really do this? Can she really turn against her dad? But because of what he did to her, why not? I wanted to understand that conflict more. She explains it, she talks about it, but as an audience member, you really have to feel those moments and be a part of it. But still, it's good. I definitely recommend it. 3.5 out of 5 for me. Awesome. All right, well, then that leaves us with The Zookeeper's Wife. 2017 war drama film. It's directed by uh, Nikki Caro, written by Angela Workman, based on the nonfiction book of the same name by Diane Ackerman, which uh, recounts the rescue of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. Film stars Jessica Chastain, Joda uh, Heldenberg, Michael El- Michael McElhatton, and Daniel Bruhl. Um, so basically, we have this wonderful little guy, um, and his wife, they run a zoo, uh, which is actually one of the biggest zoos at the time in Europe. And um, there, here it is, 1939, and it's just before um, Hitler comes in, you know, and Germans attack and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, naturally, September 1939 happens. Zoo gets halfway destroyed. And... Um, uh, heck... Is his name Lutz Heck is, is is the character's name, um, played by very very well by Daniel Bruhl, and um, he comes in and basically he has to he, he's the guy who's there to be like hey so I see this is what's got going on this is how your life is going to go from here on out whatever blah 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 so um, shenanigans ensue they actually decide to help the Jews by uh, taking um uh by 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 taking on the Jews and hiding them in the zoo before actually moving them on um and getting them out sometimes they're disguised and whatever else um all right so I, I, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with this movie but i just kind of feel like this is the requisite don't forget about world war 2 movie and um it, it it's you get one or two of these a year um and it's just kind of like you know make sure you remember world war Two and germans were bad and holocaust and stuff like that and while i certainly don't want to be flippant when it comes to things like the holocaust um i just kind of feel like um maybe one movie every a couple of years two or three years like a schindler's list something truly powerful something truly moving and i i I expected more this is based on a true story i expected more out of it and um it just was straight up by the numbers um it's very well acted. Daniel Bruhl, again, he's my favorite actor out of this movie. He's, he does play a very wonderful bad guy. Um, 
but even he is by the numbers and so you're you're really leaning on your actors and actresses to do more with characters that let's call them 2.5D right they're not really three dimensional but they're not two dimensional either um they're trying to stretch them out of the page and yet um there's there's effort shown but nothing that really comes to bear. I give this 4.25 out of 5. It's really decent. It's a, I mean, it is a well-made movie, but it's just nothing you haven't seen before. Um, if this is up your alley, though, you are definitely going to be all over it. 4.25 out of 5. Bring us home there, Tim. I'm really glad I saw this movie at the movie theater because it's been getting shit upon by a lot of people, and it's actually very good. I think the performances all around were were, were stellar, um, minus her older when it when her when her kid gets older, he was a little goofy. I don't know why. I don't know if because he was hardcore German or hardcore Polish actor, and he just had no idea what the hell the English people were talking about, or he didn't actually know what he was saying in English. But it just came across as if he was acting and just this was like one of the first things he was in. But everybody else did a pretty damn good job. But I thought that it didn't really feel as a whole, like as if things were at stake. The Jews were in hiding effortlessly. They were able to live in the basement and then escape. During the daytime, they have to live in the basement. During the nighttime, they're able to come up and be in the living room and the family room, listen to the piano and talk and have light gatherings and all this stuff. Nothing really felt like they were in trouble. Nobody, like, none of the officers suspected anything that would have created some, like, tense moment or anything like that. You never really got a lick of any of that stuff. Other than when Daniel Brühl, when his character comes in and one of the Jewish ladies is up in the dining room, and she has to hide. You see it in the trailer. That's really the only time anything like that actually happens to where immediate consequences could incur. And the movie actually kind of reminds me of The Book Thief, where it lacked the emotion during a depressing period of time. But I thought The Zookeeper's Wife did such a better job than The Book Thief. Um, again, this is the Holocaust, so whenever you are going through the ghetto with a character, you just see people there, and some of them are starving. You really don't get the sense of atmosphere, of time, of setting. And I guess in layman's terms, what I'm trying to say was that it just wasn't depressing enough. And really, that's what some of the main criticisms of this movie was, was that the movie just was not depressing enough. And I don't think the movie needed to be, had to be super depressing, because since what the movie was focusing on mainly was this wife, her family, the zoo, and the people that she's trying to hide. But again, I think that would have added more to the stakes if you were able to experience, see what exactly was going on. But then another thing you learn at the very end of the movie, that 300 Jews were successfully hid in the zoo and escaped. None perished, other than two people, none perished. So 298 people successfully escaped. The audience who are watching this movie in no way would get the impression of there being no more than maybe 15 that were in her care. The movie jumps through the you know the entire period while uh, while uh, Germany is in World War II. There's no montage. There's no like letting on that there were 300 of these people at her house, 
throughout those years. Not all at once, but people were coming and going, and some staying longer than others. But once you see that little blip there before the end credits, you're kind of blown away because, again, I, I just thought there were like 20, 30, maybe 50 tops, but not 300. And I guess because of that, I felt it did a disservice to the actual story. But it is a very effective film, it's a very good film, and I think the performances by Chastain and Daniel Bruhl and the gentleman who played her husband did very good jobs, and I recommend it. But I unfortunately sit, again, with this one, 3.5 out of 5. All right, well that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be The Fate of the Furious, Smurfs, The Lost Village, and... The Discovery. Of course, Fate of the Furious and Smurfs will be in theaters, and The Discovery is out on Netflix. So, without further ado, I believe we are down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we're, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt on Twitter, by following at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Bill Paxton, I get to say this. My father always read obituaries to me out loud, not because he was maudlin or morbid, but because they were mini biographies. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>